I have been very lucky, both in theater and in opera, to work with a lot of directors who rely on the designer, or at least rely on the, the power of the design to help them get this experience going. And yes, that is, for the designer, the crucial element. My fellow designers, um, I do scenery and sometimes costumes, and sometimes both, but I always work with the lighting designer, and I, I actually prefer working with the costume designer, too also is a source of collaborative force and generation. And I mean, that's one of the great things about theater is that it allows you or it makes you do work that is better than you are because you have all of these uh, divergent forces, some of which are in somewhat of conflict or at least in some sort of t good tension that will generate something that is bigger than any one of us. That was stage designer and 2011 NEA opera honoree John Conklin. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. John Conklin is a legendary stage designer, equally at home with opera and with straight theater. His influence on set design is difficult to exaggerate. He's considered a conceptual rather than a literal designer. He's not interested in creating a static painting to be used as a backdrop. His designs are often abstract, sometimes whimsical, always powerful. His set and costume designs are seen in opera houses, theaters, and ballet companies around the world. He was associate artistic director for the Glimmerglass Opera for 18 years, and he serves as the artistic advisor for Boston Lyric Opera. John Conklin received a Lifetime Achievement Award for Theatrical Design from the Theater Development Fund, and he's on the faculty of the Tisch School of the Arts at New York University. I spoke with John Conklin soon after he was announced as a 2011 NEA Opera Honoree. I began our conversation by asking him what drew him to set design. Well, I think maybe it was because I couldn't sing. <laughs> I always wanted to be... <laughs> if I could be anything, a Verdi baritone. But that was not in the cards. But designing seemed to combine everything that I was interested in, which was music and theater and painting and architecture. So it, it just was a way for me to combine all my interests into something that I could do. So you loved opera and you loved theater when you were younger, when you were a kid. Yes. You know, I was brought up in a household that loved music and appreciated music, uh, classical music. The one form of music that my mother and father were not so fond of was opera, it turns out. But they indulged me in my interest in opera. They used to take me to the opera and so on, and I uh, bought recordings, and I, as many people have, I listened to the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts faithfully every Saturday afternoon. So from quite an early age, opera was, was a direction that I was interested in. You figured out pretty early on that this was the career that you wanted. Yes, yeah. Even in, in high school, I started to design scenery. Then when I went to Yale as an undergraduate, they had a very strong um, drama 
uh, club, as it were, the Dramat. So I did a lot of work for them, and um, then I went to a year at the drama school, then I went away, worked for a while, came back to the drama school. But really from my first early days, designing scenery was, was what I seemed to be destined to do. Tell me about the first play that you designed scenery for. When I went to Yale was when I really focused on theater, and not only the Yale Dramat, the undergraduate theater, but I worked for many years at the Williamstown Summer Theater, which at that point was run by Nico Sakharopoulos. He taught in the Yale Drama School, but he was also the head of the undergraduate theater club. So um, I did a lot of work there, and both Williamstown and the Dramat did really interesting, complex plays. So I was able to start off designing things like Danton's Death or things like that, which was a rare and wonderful opportunity. And Williamstown was, um, I went there for many years as an assistant designer, and I would design one show a year, and then I went there as a a guest designer for many, many years. And that was the place that, with Nikos and with the company that he had there, and the spirit of the place was, was a real introduction to the joys of theater, the joys of theater as a community, the joys of theater as a working place with a group of dedicated people who are spending quite literally almost all their time in the theater trying to bring forth these these events. So it was a, a very good, tough, but good beginning to the idea of theater as a, well, I guess it's a dedication. It takes an enormous amount of time and focus and intensity in order to bring off these pieces. And um, I was early on introduced to that set of circumstances and accepted it and embraced it. When you began or or fell into this world, this collaborative world of theater, I would imagine that you work very, very closely with the director. Yes. The director, I would imagine, would be chosen first, but I would imagine the designer would have to be chosen pretty soon after the director because you have a lot of work to do. Yes. Of course, again, I come back to Nikos, who was the head of Williamstown and who worked, I worked with the Dramat, who was a, an extremely dynamic theatrical director who demanded, in a good way, a lot from his designers. He was very dependent on design or embraced the power of design as something not just a kind of adjunct to a production and not just a kind of mood-setting device or an illustration of the piece, but a a real integral part of the whole situation on the stage. You added opera to your to your tool bag pretty early on. Yes. When I was at Yale in uh, graduate school, uh, Wesley Balk, no, actually I was, I was there as an undergraduate, and Wesley Balk was in the graduate school as a director, and he got a job with the Santa Fe Opera. So I went, and I had worked with him at Yale, and so I went with him to Santa Fe really right away at the beginning of my professional career doing opera. So from the very beginning, it was sort of back and forth, and I wanted it to be back and forth. I, I didn't want to get stuck, as it were, as a as an as only an opera designer or or as only a theater designer, because I felt that the, those fields were closer together than 
was so recognized in those days. I mean, it's always been true in Europe that directors and designers did both opera and theater all the time, alternately, and felt comfortable in both worlds. That has not been so true in the United States, I think, to the detriment of perhaps both fields. Theater, spoken theater can do things that opera can't do, and opera can do things that spoken theater can't do. So you want to, you know, have as, have as much range out in front of you as you can. When you're designing for opera, John, how does it differ from designing for theater? And I mean, even the process of design, I, I would imagine that as well as working with the director and, and the lighting designer, you're also listening to this music. Yes. I mean, that is the great advantage that opera has, is that you are able to listen to it. Now, of course, when you're doing a play, you don't often really get a chance to hear it. But with opera, in most cases, unless it's a new piece, you are able to listen to it and listen to it again and again. And since the music, although connected to text, exists in a way outside the text or beside the text, you're listening to a force beyond words, which can be a very powerful motivation or a a source of inspiration because it's as though you're sort of listening to the subtext of the piece or you're listening to the, the underlying mysterious consciousness of the piece that exists below and above words. And that is an of enormous value. Indeed, it becomes very difficult when you are doing a new piece where you only have the score or you possibly have the composer at the piano playing the piece either okay or not very well and singing all the parts. You do not get the feeling of the piece. You you can't get the feeling of the color and the range of the piece. And I remember in an extraordinary way, because this is very, very unusual, when I did the Ghosts of Versailles for the Metropolitan. They had a session where, with a synthesizer filling in for the orchestra and a lot of young singers singing the parts, all the parts, they created a recording of the piece. It was partially done to help the singers learn their parts, but it was of a huge advantage because you got the sense of the quality of the piece the musical texture of the piece, which in almost the case of all operas, but in certainly in the case of The Ghost of Versailles, which had a lot of very atmospheric, mood-setting music, which one wanted to reflect in the visual world, it was invaluable to, to hear it before you started to work, not just at the first orchestra rehearsal. And I've done other premieres where I've been felt frustrated because I couldn't tap into the into the intangible kind of mood sounds textures of the of an orchestral score John you're known for conceptual rather than narrative or literal design do you think that's fair um i think that's fair what they're saying and what i'm trying to say is that i do not think that the function of the visual world which also includes the blocking and movement of the actors as well as the scenery and costumes and lights necessarily need to mimic or copy 
or even add to the narrative surface of the opera. And since in opera you have two narratives going on, you have the text narrative, which is the story and who says what to whom, and then you have the music, which is a narrative which is overlaid or accompanying or even in cases contrasting, set in tension with the narrative. So I'm not sure that it it isn't that the visual world is another narrative that does not necessarily need to literally follow the surface narrative or illustrate the surface narrative because it might be illustrating the music, which might be be saying something quite different than the surface narrative. And since it's very hard to say what the music is actually saying, because it is it is has neither text nor image, it seems to me that that frees everyone, including the audience, to go on a journey of that perhaps might be more complex. Conceptual has come to mean, and certainly in the United States it is still used in this in a, in a kind of negative way. It comes back to where everybody says, or not everybody, but people say, you should just do what the composer says, which sounds perfectly logical on the surface. But when you come down to it, you think, what is the composer saying, actually? How do we know what he's saying? Because, again, he can deal with the text, but then he himself has composed a score which I don't know that he knows everything he's saying. I mean, it seems to me that the great composers, great artists, great painters, in a certain way, they don't know what they're doing. They have a surface level in which they feel they are in control and which they are in control, but then welling up from underneath or above or wherever is all of this unconscious partially formed inspiration. So, and even composers who write a lot, like Wagner, about what they meant, in a way, or what they were trying to do, I'm not sure that that's actually valid, because that, to me, even if it's coming from the composer, is limiting things. Whereas the great artists and the great composers, that's why they're great, is they have no limits not even their own limits. They don't even recognize, they can't even recognize their limits. So I just think that to just do what the composer said is a sort of untenable philosophical position anyway. And it certainly is not, to me, a theatrically valid position because these works, particularly of the great pieces, spread so fast in every direction that one wants to race along with them and try to capture them as best as one can. Well, you said in an interview that what you're interested in is creating an energy that flows rather than rather than yes, mimic right. a meaning. Yes, mimic a meaning or a painting. It is not a, the the design is not a static picture or static state into which the singers are dumped and which remains in the background or even in the foreground while the piece goes on. Yes, the main energy of a piece comes from 
the orchestra and the conductor and from the performers. That is clear. But I think they can be surrounded by what I, yes, what I sort of think of as an energy field, a space of potential energy in which when the singers and the music collide or rev each other up, the field force around them, the visual force, will become ignited and and the whole event will take on a kind of um, energy and uh, splendor. Now, that doesn't happen all the time or even very often, unfortunately, because it's a tricky thing to do. And it's a rare occasion when all these elements do kind of come together. But I think that, yes, that scenery and costumes are not passive. They are active ingredients. Well, you've also been quite vocal in audiences not being passive either. Yes, that is one of my pet concerns, actually, because I feel that for whatever reason, some audiences are made a bit passive by producing organizations, by opera houses, by critics, that opera or theater is perceived as something that is created by these group of people who have apparent talent and apparent expertise and apparent performance abilities. And so this thing is created and then it is given to the audience for them to sit back and marvel at or be entertained by. To me, that is not exactly how this equation should work. Because to me, the performance does not happen on stage. The stimulus happens on stage, and the performance happens in the heart and mind and guts of an audience member. So we are, we are in the job of providing as much stimulus at a very high level of energy and commitment to generate a performance inside each audience member so that that gives any audience member a freedom to sort of create the performance and to create the meaning. Now, I'm not saying that the people who are creating the stimulus, the conductor, the composer, the orchestra, the singers, the designers, that they need to have a meaning that is enveloping them and forcing them to do this production in this way. But then they produce, or we produce this thing, and then we give it up. We can't say that this means this. I mean, I don't want to hear, really, what Wagner meant by the ring, even from him, because he will say something very interesting, I'm sure, and at great length, but it, it, I don't really care. What I care about as an audience member is what's going to happen to me. And it's going to happen in a different way to everybody because everybody is different. Therefore, any given stimulus is going to produce a different and personal meaning. You know, I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to as an illustration is what's happening in opera programs, program notes from the director saying what we were doing in this production was da-da-da-da-da-da, and we... We're trying to bring out this aspect of the piece and da-da-da-da is just wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just not the way things work. But 
we, the audience, get used to being told by quasi-experts what things are and what they mean. And when, you know, a review turns up in the New York Times, of course, people are going to say, well, these people are smart. They know what they're doing. They're telling me that this is this, and therefore, I guess this is this. And if I don't like it, I'm a fool, and um, I'm wrong. And that, I think, is, in a way, becoming more and more prevalent and is more and more debilitating to everyone. This I'm very curious about. When you have an opera, let's say Carmen, for example, because I know you've designed sets for Carmen in different venues, in Houston, in Seattle, in Stockholm, most recently in Boston, yet these designs are all quite different. Can you just talk about how you reapproach opera? Well, of course, great pieces, and I apologize for the word great because that is another thing that I think possibly confuses the issue, have a multiplicity of meanings. I think that is one of the definitions of greatness, that they mean many things and not, as we come back to, not just what the composer said he meant, so that these pieces will generate different meanings in you because, again, they are not the bearer of an exact meaning. They are a stimulus. When I'm approaching Carmen and I approach it with a different director and a different set of collaborators, I'm sort of, we're sort of like an audience in front of Carmen. And Carmen is being performed and it is detonating in us a whole series of different emotions and different reactions so that the same stimulus 10 years or even three years later, listening to it with a different director or even just listening to it by myself will sound like a different piece because I am a totally different person. And therefore, the piece has changed. I mean, this doesn't work with all pieces. But again, because I tend to want to do, and it's one of the reasons I tend to want to do that, to work with quote-unquote classical theater or classical opera, I mean, or, you know, the more standard repertory, as it were, because I find them, for the most part, able to supply an infinite number of, of events in one, in oneself, to say nothing of, of a group of other people. I had the rare chance, certainly for an American designer, to design two ring cycles, one in San Francisco and one in Chicago. And one of the first things that being faced with the ring for the first time, you're sort of facing this thing. And I think one of the first realizations that I had was because you're never going to be able to do everything, you can't worry about that. You need to do what stimulates you. I think that, you know, people get very wrought up about productions of pieces that seem to be violating the composer's intentions, say. I mean, this whole business, which I find quite fascinating, is this Porgy and Bess in Boston that Diane Paulus is doing, in which they have gone into the piece and into the book and into the music and move things around and change things. And, and there has been 
a cry of outrage. But you think, now wait a minute. If at the end of this production of Porgy and Bess, all scores of Porgy and Bess were going to be destroyed, and all recordings, so that the only record that was left in anyone's mind was this ART production of Porgy and Bess, well, of course, that's not going to happen. So let's let people play around more. And I defy anybody to tell me that there is a definitive production of anything. I wish everybody would just kind of relax a little bit about, you know, doing Tosca set in 1930s. Clearly, Puccini didn't mean that, yes, but maybe he meant it in a different or a deeper way. You're on the faculty of the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, New York University, where you teach courses right. in design. Do you encourage a sense of play in your students? Yes. I mean, I think the theater just is a place of playfulness in a in the bigger sense. I mean, even the most serious pieces are playful. Tristan is a very playful opera in many ways. Just the fact that it's on stage and that it's singers and people don't really die. I think playfulness can lead you sometimes deeper into yourself because you as a designer and you as an audience member, because what you think you should feel or what you have been taught to feel or what you think is appropriate for you to feel gets erased a little bit and you get closer to what you do really feel. Again, I think that's a, it's, a, it's a way of expressing it, that the sense of playfulness is not being unserious. It simply is a way of loosening up these kind of rigidities, which we may have in us without really knowing that they're there. That's one of the real difficulties and, and bad things about that aspect is that there are kind of prejudices, unexamined prejudices, and they can often get in the way of either working on a piece or absorbing a piece as an audience member. I want you to tell me the story of how you found out that you were going to be a 2011 NEA Opera honoree. Well, the call came, and I just thought, what does this mean? What, what, what? I am extremely appreciative of awards, but somewhere deep in me, or perhaps not so deep, I mistrust them a little bit. Again, because it's a collaborative world. It's not like painting. It is a collaborative world, so why me and not all the people who, who make me? The one thing that I was particularly pleased about was that, as far as I know, this is the first time a designer has been given yes. this award. And I thought that that was a significant acknowledgement of the, the performative power of design, that design is not a passive mood-setting illustration that just sits there on stage, but is an active ingredient along with the active ingredient of somebody like Spate, who as a producer is an active ingredient. The other awards, Teresa Stevens, a performer, and to Robert Ward, a composer, maybe the sort of quartet of us makes up an interesting picture of the whole world of opera. Thank you. 
That was stage designer and 2011 NEA Opera honoree John Conklin. You can see John on October 27th when the 2011 National Endowment for the Arts Opera Honors Awards Ceremony takes place at 7.30 p.m. at the Sydney Harmon Hall in downtown Washington, D.C. In addition to John, the NEA is honoring General Director Spate Jenkins, mezzo-soprano Risa Stevens, and composer Robert Ward. If you can't make it to Washington for the event, don't despair. We're webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov and click on Opera Honors for more information about this free event and the live webcast. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Mozart's Overture to the Marriage of Figaro, performed by the University of Kentucky Opera Theater, Philip Miller Conductor. Special thanks to the director of the program, Everett McCorvey. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, the president and CEO of Opera America, Mark Skorka. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.